At the apex of a warm summer's evening, as the sun was beginning to drape itself over the houses and trees with an orange hue, I hiked up the steep incline of 2nd and Harlow to 3rd and Harlow. Busy with the words inside my own mind to distract myself from the intensity of the climb, I was abruptly encompassed by an all-too-familiar gust of wind and the beckoning sounds of a nearby train horn. Perhaps it was my lack of imagination as a child growing up, but for what I lacked in imaginary friends, I made up for in the friendly familiarity of landmarks and routines around me. They became my friendly giants that framed my otherwise small world. fall is a wonderful time for storytelling, especially storytelling about small town life. Um, the first thing that comes to my mind is practical magic, because who who does not love the vibe and feel of uh, that film? I thought, wow, what sounds nicer than um, having just a regular story time about uh, small town life and the small town that I grew up in, which was Troutdale. To kick things off, I interviewed Len, Anno, Len Otto, who is um, deeply entrenched, entrenched in uh, Troutdale history. He is a major player in the Troutdale Historical Society, and um, they have a newsletter that comes out every few months. The next newsletter is uh, coming out, I think, October, and um, they are at... They're, oh shoot, I wish I had it in front of me. They are looking to build their members to 500 members. So if this inspires you, um, why not consider joining the Troutdale Historical Society, um, helping them meet their goal of 500 members. And um, also, if you are from Troutdale, um, the newsletter is looking for stories to share in the newsletter. And um, I know that they're desperately seeking stories. So if you'd like to share a story either on the podcast here or also with the newsletter or hand in hand, um, I know that Len and I would both absolutely go bonkers for that. So um, yeah, I'll leave it at that for now. And um, man, I just, I hope that you enjoy this as much as I enjoy this. And uh, I look forward to continuing this journey. All right, without further ado, I'm going to jump into our interview with Len Otto and um, we'll pick things up in a bit. never done this before thanks for being here <laughs> trying this out with me my pleasure okay so I knew you from Sweetbriar Elementary School your class was in the back corner I think around where mine was and you had that fun little mural was it painted on glass it was painted on glass and it was painted there by a former student of mine Nick Anderson <laughs> so and I reminded him of that probably Oh, 20 years later, I had gone to a uh, graduation at uh, probably the Coliseum, and he was there because somebody he knew was graduating. And I said, you know, Nick, you know, I've always admired your artwork. Are you still doing art? And he said, said, sadly, no, he wasn't. But he said, that was kind of like kind of like really extra, extra special to me in my career as a student. He said that that was so fun and so rewarding. And he had recruited a group of other students to help him with the, the painting on the window. And it stayed there for the rest of my career. Was it something that they got to do like during class time or was it like after school's 
school time that they did it. He wanted to do it during his recess time. He, he gave up his recess to do it, as did the other students. And it involved a picture of me, the backside of me, fishing rod in hand, and the Sandy River. Yeah, I feel like I vaguely remember that. Yeah, yeah, that was really special. I always thought you were a really cool teacher, and I always wanted to have you as a teacher. And so this is extra cool that I get to have this one-on-one time with you. So thank you. Oh, you're very, very welcome. Yeah, so as I said, I know you from your school days. Um, How would you like to introduce yourself to everybody? Well, I'm Len Otto. I hear a siren in the background. (laughs) Recording outside today. Yes, and... um, We are sitting in a park about, oh, maybe 150 or 200 yards from where I grew up, right on the banks of the Sandy River. And I I, I would just introduce myself by saying that it was a very, very special place to grow up. Um, On one side, we had the Sandy River, and on the other side, we had Beaver Creek, and the property was ours, and we had property bordering both rivers or both both bodies of water I should say yeah and so I think you mentioned to me you said that your family has been in the area since like 1958 a little earlier 19 my um, parents bought the property on the Sandy River in 1950 they did not move here until 1951 Um, and it must have been after February, and the reason I say that is I was the first child born in Troutdale of our family, and I'm, and I'm third in line. And so, and I know that your dad was a mayor in Troutdale for a chunk of time. Go ahead and tell me a little bit about that. Okay. How much time do we have? I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> Go at it. Okay. Um, it goes back to probably the late 1950s when my father got a water bill and at the time um, it turned out that part of the city was metered water and part of the city was just a flat fee for water and he was metered and was comparing that amount with the amount that the flat fee people paid and there was a vast vast difference between the two and he got a little bit irritated and went to the city council and they said well you need to be on the planning commission and so he got appointed to the planning commission from there um, he he spent his time there and, and affected change, actually. He, the city did eventually go to all metered water. So his presence there was, you know, positive in that way. And got himself elected to the city council. And about 1966, got himself elected mayor. The city had a couple crises on the plate at the time. And the big one was the fact that the state was the it was the precursor to the Department of Environmental Quality, but the state was threatening the city with basically taking over management of the city because there was raw sewage running into the Sandy River. Oh my gosh! And the solution to that is build a sewer plant. Well, 
we're talking late 1960s, times weren't so great for a lot of people, and yet he was able to persuade voters that they needed to invest in a sewer plant. While there was some federal money involved, um, I know there was about $250,000 of local money involved. That was for a city of around 500 people at the time. And if you do the math, it's a pretty substantial chunk of change for, yeah, to pay in taxes. But they went with it. So it was a huge undertaking. Um, it passed and was constructed. And what we commonly call the Troutlets in Troutdale. The Troutdale-outlets, yeah. <laughs> Shortened to Troutlets in our house. Um, the sewer plant was behind where those are. And, and since, and you probably know the, the site because if you look down on that vacant land behind the troutlets, you will see some remaining concrete structures. Most of them have been removed. And it is part of what it is now. The collection system is the same, but the sewer plant has actually moved. It has. Um, and it's much further north, and it's closer to the airport. When you're sitting up there, say, in one of the restaurants, like uh, Pompeo's or the Thai restaurant or, you know, basically any of them, looking down on a sewer plant might change your appetite a little bit. Just a little bit. <laughs> oh, God. Sorry, Daddy. Long leg crawled on my arm. I <laughs> was not prepared for that. A little bit of phobia. Just a bit. Just a bit. Okay. All right. We're good. <laughs> so um, now that, okay, so the city was able to correct the, the sewage issue. So ultimately that cleaned up the Sandy River, correct? So and, the, and the state did not take over the city. Which is the best part. <laughs> was there even like, um, how did... How, did, how was it discovered that there was so much sewage going on in the Sandy River? Like, was it causing health problems at all? Or, like, what made it on the state's radar of, like, hey, this is an issue? We have to go back in history here <laughs> at this point, and that's kind of what I'm all about is history. And back in the day, um, one of the brick buildings on Main Street housed a Blitz Weinhardt beer factory, I'll call it. And there effluent, which was rather an innocuous waste, probably yeast and whatever other byproducts were part of the brewing process, were put in this tunnel. This tunnel led to the Sandy River. Well, people in town at the time had to have either a septic tank, a cesspool, or a connection to this tunnel. <sighs> And some people opted for the connection to the tunnel. Oh, no. <laughs> and that is what forced the issue. Oh, my gosh. I would want to just slap everybody on the wrist. I'd be like, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> Where is your brain? Exactly. Like, like what do you think was going to happen? Uh, okay, well, um, thanks for your dad for, for doing that, keeping the Sandy River clean. That's huge. And I'm going to continue on a little bit. Please, yeah. Um, he did other things as well. He brought this property that we're sitting on into the city as the first city park. And it goes back to 
1964, a very scary event happened to those of us that lived on the river. And the event was what are now commonly called the 1964 Christmas floods. And at the time, the Willamette Valley Advent Christian Conference owned the property, and we just called it the church property, and more about that in a bit. Um, But in 1964, when we had a period of weather that was cold, and there was a lot of precipitation in the form of snow and ice, and by a lot, I mean probably more than average we, than what we would have in any particular winter. And it covered the entire West Coast, I'm going to say, from about Northern California up into British Columbia, from the Cascades to the ocean. That entire area was blanketed in frozen water. That's insane. Basically, yeah. That's a very, you know, simple way of putting it. Following that, we got some very warm rain. Uh Uh-huh. It was like in the 60s, insanely warm, and all of this rain hit all at once. And all of that ice and snow melted all at once. And because the Cascades were involved, what they had gotten essentially melted in a very short period of time. And the river, which in the winter normally runs at about, I would say, and I'm going to use a term here, um, 3,000 CFS, cubic feet per second, um, which is just a measure of water, that amount of water ballooned to probably 70, 80, maybe even 90,000 cubic feet per second. That's, in like, I've seen the river flood, but I don't know if I've seen it. I mean, that sounds like a, a lot. That <laughs> sounds crazy. It is. It's a once-in-a-generation kind of yeah. flood, maybe even more. Um, you probably have seen the effects of the 1996 flood. Yes. That that was a major, major flood, but it was not as big. That's what I was picturing. I was like, it's got to have been bigger than that flood. Um, out on the Sandy River Bridge, which is essentially next to the house in which I grew up, there's a river gauge. About every hour, the person at the National Weather Service who had charge of these river gauges he, he wanted us to go out every hour and measure the river level. And what this gauge amounts to is a wire cable on a spool with a weight. And it is lowered to the river surface when it starts breaking water. You look at the gauge, you put that in your memory banks, and you crank the weight back up, lock it up, and head back to the house and record it. And that was my one, well, my job and my brother's job during this flood. I remember going out on that bridge, and the bridge was literally shaking with the pounding of this water. It was freaky. It got even more freaky 
when all of a sudden my mother screamed and she said, that's Eleanor Clark's house. And Eleanor Clark was a Portland teacher and fortunately she was not home, but her house was floating by. And during that flood, um, the property we're sitting on extended out further by maybe 150 or 200 feet on the level. Is that why there's no more? <laughs> it just has a steep bank there, correct. And all of that got washed away. This property, now I will get to the point of how it came to be a city park. Yeah, no, this is great. I didn't know any of this. <laughs> this property just gradually washed away. We had a window facing this property in our house. Mm -hmm. And the, we watched as huge buildings from this park, from, from not from this park, from this, it's a community church camp, remember? And their buildings, one by one, toppled into this river. We watched that water coming at us, and we watched those buildings going in, and mom was a nervous wreck, as you can imagine. She had five relatively small children, the oldest being about 15, maybe 14 or 15, my oldest sister. And she's thinking that the house is going to go in the river too. Very, very real fear. And the only thing between us and this raging water is the historic Columbia River Highway. Unfortunately, there was kind of what I'll call minimal engineering on the highway. And they more or less just scooped up the land from either side to bring it to that elevation that would work for a bridge. And so it's not much more than sand and cobble. And my mother has this brilliant idea at that time. And she gets on the phone. And in Troutdale, there, I think still is, a, a little state property where Halsey Street and the old highway converge or diverge, take your pick. And she called a man up there that she knew and said, I think his name was Don, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and I'll just pretend it's Don for the time being. She said, Don, this water is going to take the bridge out. And very, very true, that water was going to take the abutment out. And bridges are incredibly expensive to engineer and to build. He came down in his state truck and parked on the highway and looked at the water and what it was doing and got in the truck, headed back, and I bet it wasn't 20 minutes later, but these huge dump trucks, seemingly huge to me as a little kid, uh, these huge dump trucks started dumping what's known as riprap all along the highway from the bridge back to where this park kind of ended at that point. He not only saved the bridge by just going out on all of them and saying, we have to have this, because he did, I don't know if he had the authority to actually order those or pay the bills or anything, but he 
took the initiative and said, we have to have these. And by the time it was done, I don't know how many dump trucks it was, but I bet it was close to 100. And I don't know how much money they spent. It doesn't matter. But I like to say, my mother saved the bridge. Because she made that phone call that phone and started call. that chain of events. Exactly. So let's fast forward a few years. And the church camp, um, people came out and they did their assessments and decided it could no longer be a church camp because they did not have the facilities and they certainly did not have the money to rebuild. So they did what was logical. They approached the mayor of the city. They kind of offered it to the city at a low ball price. So my father took their offer to the city council. The council said, great, where are you going to get the money? Good question, because it was not in the budget. And it takes a lot of money to, you know, put a major investment like that in place. My father did some research, made some phone calls, and learned, of all things, that there was a State of Oregon grant that would pay small cities to buy property for parks. And so the assessor comes out, and assesses the value of the property and does his paperwork and goes back and communicates to the city there's something fishy here, something is wrong. He thought that the property was worth far more than $20,000. He approached the owners, the church camp, and they explained that no, there's nothing wrong with this offer. It is legitimate. We own it. We have the title to it. And we do not want it developed in houses or anything like that. We want it preserved as a park. Yeah, it was it was a neat convergence of events again. And so I'm going to diverge just a moment and talk about this, some memories from this property when it was a church camp. Sunday mornings, we did go to church, but we would sometimes return in time to hear two groups singing to each other in just amazing harmony. One group was down here on the riverbank. The other group had climbed to the top of Broughton Bluff, and they would sing hymns back and forth. I'm dead. <laughs> yeah, it was it was amazing. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. Oh my gosh, they should bring that back somehow. Yeah, it would be and it wouldn't matter what form, yeah, it, in any form. Singing. Correct. Yeah. My 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 father died in 1994. In 1995 or 6 Mayor Paul Tallhofer approached the council with the idea of naming this property after Glen Otto for his service. And they voted unanimously in favor of it. And so somewhere back in 1995 or 96, somewhere back there, um, it was renamed the Glen Otto Community Park. He must have been so touched. It was very touching, yeah. Yeah. Well, it could have been the sewer plant that they named after him. 
the Glen Auto Sewage <laughs> Treatment Plant. That kind of rolls off the tongue. It totally just rolls off the, the tongue quite dignified, surely. Um, really quickly, since we're talking about river and water, I read your Bygone Times, which is the newsletter, which I did want to plug in before we closed out this interview. Um, and so do you want to talk a little bit about the Historical Society and, and what you do in it and why people should care about it? We are the Troutdale Historical Society, and um, we have, and this is still a relatively small town, I'll say, of, what, 16,100-some people, I think. And yet this city has three museums that are operated by our Troutdale Historical Society. And I find that kind of amazing. That's like one mu museum for every 5,300 people or something. <laughs> and we could start with the Depot Museum. It's a historic building. We have a small exhibit in there, and it just kind of pays tribute to the fact that Troutdale is and was a railroad town. We were very much dependent upon the railroad, as many communities of the time were. And we've kind of grown past that. Um, but it played a huge part in Troutdale being Troutdale. So we have the Depot Museum, which is in downtown Troutdale. If you go just a little bit south of that, the next building that is a historical society piece is the Harlow House. And Captain John Harlow was a major, major part of Troutdale being Troutdale and it being a railroad town. It was his son that built the house, however. If you noticed, this is where the episode ends rather abruptly. Um, and that's because he and I just kept right on talking right on through um, all of the battery packs that I had brought for the interview. So here I am, post-show, doing a wrap-up, um, sitting here at my laptop. Um, thank you so much for being here today. This is my first podcast. I've never podcasted before. Man, was it a rough go, but I did it, and I made it through, and I, kn I, I know a lot more now than I first started. Um, if you have any questions or want to learn more about what we talked about in the episode here, I linked all of that information into the show notes for you. You. and um, I'm looking forward to seeing you on the next episode. I'm going to be doing a back to school special because tis the season and um, this is my favorite time of year so I'm just gonna hit on all the fall landmarks because why not? <laughs> um, anyway, thank you so much for listening today. Um, feel free to comment whatever as I uh, learn to do this new thing called podcasting. Um, until then, I hope you're doing well, and my name is Tamsin. Welcome to Troutdale. <laughs>